If you want to write stories your readers will love, there are three things you need to do. Understand storytelling principles, see how other writers have applied those principles, and then use them in your own work. Here on the Story Nerd Podcast, our goal is to demystify story theory. We'll help you with the first two steps so that you can get started with the third. My name is Valerie Francis. I'm a writer and literary editor, and I focus on stories by, for, and about women. And I'm Melanie Hill, writer, editor, and poet, and I have a passion for middle grade and young adult stories, spy stories, fairy tales, and master detective novels. On today's episode, Melanie pitched Booksmart so that we can study forces of antagonism. This 2019 film was directed by Olivia Wilde from an original screenplay by Emily Halpern, Sarah Haskins, Susanna Fogel, and Katie Silverman. Of course, there will be spoilers because we can't talk about the movie without talking about the movie. And we'd love it if you could give the show a rating and review. For Apple Podcast listeners, you can do it right from your phone. Simply go to the show's landing page, scroll down to the bottom, click the stars, and you're done. It's that simple. Alrighty, Melanie, let's jump into the film. What did you think of Booksmart? What do you think the genre is? Oh, gosh. Here we go. Here we go. <laughs> All right. We're going to go on a bit of a ride for this one, I think. Um, right. The, I had down for the global genre a worldview maturation story, and that's the only one that I can truly say applies to this story. And even then, it only applies really to some of the story. So I think that's a big red flag. Um, if you can't pick it uh, easily or when you do, you can't apply it to the overall story. So before I ask Valerie about her picks for the global and secondary genres this week, it's probably a good time to speak a little bit about writing for the young adult audience. I would class Book Smart in the same class of story as all the versions of American Pie. These movies rely on making their audiences cringe with discomfort, awkwardness, and they also use gratuitous stereotypes to create laughs and gags and make you not have to think very hard. I think <laughs> being very harsh. <laughs> While I don't think movies like Grease or Saturday Night Fever have necessarily aged well, they do treat their characters with respect and provide them with meaningful dialogue and story arcs. So I would say if I compare those types, the American Pie and Booksmart movies with movies like Grease, you can really see a contrast in the storytelling. So my biggest takeaway from this movie would be, you know, respect your young adult audience. And while I was working um, on this movie and looking at what it was working, what sort of things should we consider when we're writing for a young adult audience, um, I've written and revisited my go-to text, which is Writing Irresistible Kid Lit by Mary Cole. This is a great book with practical advice and examples from contemporary and classic young adult and children kid lit stories. And Mary writes on page 14, before you start writing smut and gore, here's a very important point to remember. You don't have to be edgy to write young adult. In fact, that's a huge trap that most aspiring writers in young adult fall into. They try on a snarky voice shoehorn in a paranormal element and put their characters in dangerous situations all because they think that's what's, that's what's selling at the moment. All it does is come off as forced. Teens have a very sensitive BS-O-meter 
and authenticity and truth are paramount. So now, Valerie, do you have any insights on the genres or things you want to add about writing for a young adult audience? Nope. <laughs> no, I do not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> honestly, like you, I think this is probably closest to a worldview genre, but it just doesn't work very well. Yes, Molly does mature a little bit. You know, she learns a bit of a lesson by the end of it, but it's not a working maturation or coming of age story. It's not a working worldview story of any subgenre. And uh, I didn't even really try to find a secondary genre because the first, the primary global genre wasn't working very well. So yeah, I'm with you on that. Yes to everything you just said. Okay. <laughs> right. So first up, so forces of antagonism. So first up, this movie was not what I expected. And I mean this in a positive and negative sense, but um, mostly negative. So <laughs> I'll get on to forces of antagonism shortly, but here are some other things that I'd like to sort of point out that I did find um, good about the movie. The actors were very normal looking. Um, they were not perfect with glow-in-the-dark teeth. So I did like the appearance of the cast. I thought they were very relatable. The party at Nick's house wasn't like a rave or full of kids drinking themselves into oblivion as far as I could see. And I think the beginning hook of the movie is the strongest part of the story, especially the inciting incident where Molly discovers the students that she looks down on are actually going to excellent colleges or have great um, career paths in front of them. And it's very clear what that turning point is and how that throws um, her and Amy into the rest of the story. So I thought they were very good. So here are some of the problems that I identified and I'll just go through quickly and, and list these. Some of the characters were too over the top to the point where they didn't add to the story, instead they took away from it. I am not sure who or what Gigi was or why she was there. The story had an identity crisis because it didn't know what sort of story it was telling. Was it a multi-layered romance, friends, crushes and then kisses? And what was with Miss Fine and Theo? Oh, I just thought that was just, to me, just so off. Was it a coming-of-age story, um, you know, with one night as a time frame? It was almost too late, I think. So the timing of the story um, that was in the story was interesting. And what was with Amy's parents and why are they even in the story? Because they're really the only parents that appear in the story and I don't know if that actually added anything. <laughs> the guy in the pizza delivery car, he became the bargaining tool that Molly used to get Amy out of jail and that felt very mechana ex deus to me. I don't know what's wrong with being a nerd. I kind of like being a nerd and I've always been a nerd so I don't know what the problem is with that. And we get to the graduation and then suddenly Molly and Amy are cool and then Molly says, I see you all and you're all great. It just makes no sense of how they got to that point through the story and I really didn't understand the final ending when Amy goes to get on the plane, did she get on the plane or did she not? I'm not sure. So there were there were a lot of things to um, really puzzled me as I was watching this a couple of times. So I think now would be a good time to remember the words of Aaron Sorkins that we've quoted before on the podcast. And in summary, 
We need to be diagnosticians. When something doesn't work, we need to figure out why it doesn't work. And I'll add to the end of that that you actually need to understand it and then learn from it and make sure that you don't make the same mistakes. Melanie, I just want to jump in here for a second because I'm I'm really glad you brought up this quote. It's one of my favorites. And of course, Aaron Sorkin is one of my favorites. I think he's so good. And what this quote does, in my opinion, is remind us, remind everyone what we are doing here on the Story Nerd podcast. This isn't about beating up another writer. And this is not about Melanie and me standing up on our soapboxes and saying, look how smart we are, (laughs) right? This is about learning from the writers who have come before us. It's about understanding what happens to a story when the fundamentals are in place and when they are not in place. And I think that's a really important point for us to remember. None of us are perfect. None of us are going to get it 100% right 100% of the time. But this is about looking at other stories and seeing what we can learn from them. Yeah, absolutely. I I second that. Um, And it's probably more interesting in some ways for us to look at things that that don't work as opposed to pointing out how things do work. Because I think, you know, we we tell our kids you learn more from your mistakes than you do from your successes. And I think that that's, that's a very true statement. All right, so another really good quote from Mary Cole's book that I think clarifies some of the elements of Book Smart, and I'll read this from page 20, is there's something crucial that I want you to remember about young adults and that that's the all-consuming nature of being a teenager. It's that sense of possibility, that feeling of your heart welling so big it could explode. Everything feels so big and important in that moment. And I do think we get a sense of Molly and Amy sitting on the cusp of their life outside of school and away from home. And they do convey the intensity and the largeness of those feelings in some parts of the movie. So I think that, but that's really an interesting point to think about when you're trying to put yourself into the shoes of your protagonists in young adult stories. But however, there were some very large what going, what's going on moments in this story, and especially, I think, including the forces of antagonism. And I would summarise all of the forces of antagonism in this movie as conflict creators. And there is also a touch of the protagonist tripping themselves up. And when I say that, I really sort of focusing mainly on Molly. I've taken her as the point of view character and put Amy as the secondary point of view character. And I've done that because I think Molly's arc is way more dramatic and um, and bigger than Amy's. So I think Molly does trip herself up. She's a bit of her own antagonist at times. And we see that play out as we go through the movie and get to the climactic moment. So no one is going out of their way to attack or destroy Amy and Molly, but the roles they've occupied in high school make it clear that they are considered to be uptight nerds by their classmates. Amy and Molly are okay with this, up to the point where they learn their classmates who partied and had fun at school also got into top universities. And AAA delivers this news to Molly in the toilets and she really gets the ball rolling and focuses Molly's attention on the fact that no one thinks they are fun. 
And Molly's solution to this, with one night left of high school to live, is to go to Nick's party. And Nick's a popular guy in school. So the journey to Nick's party is the equivalent of the quest in this movie. And there are many obstacles along the way to be to becoming what is potentially considered fun before high school finishes. Um, but the focus is really on just getting to the party. And some of those obstacles or challenges that they face are really quite simple in some ways. So there's there's the diversion to Jared's party and Alan and George's murder, murder mystery party. Um, Molly and Amy don't have the address to Nick's party. Drugs, they get given drugs that they don't want to take um, and they hallucinate and see themselves as Barbie dolls. And that that is just a truly weird scene, I think. <laughs> um, they have, they cut, you know, they get a flat mobile phone so they can't contact anybody. Their crushes or fantasies are not interested in them. Not that they ever really knew that anyone was interested in them, but that, that happens. And through the movie, they move through some typical things that you would well and truly expect square teenagers on a quest to be cool um, that they experience. So there's nothing really original, I would say, about the forces of antagonism in this movie and how they're presented to our protagonists. But ultimately, the biggest challenge Amy and Molly face is the power imbalance in their relationship. Molly pushes Amy into doing things that she doesn't want to do all the time, including finding Ryan, the skater girl, for a chance for Amy to potentially maybe have sex at Nick's party. As smart as Molly claims to be and as big a feminist as she thinks she is, she also fails to recognise how ironic it is to push her friend into having a sexual encounter that she may not need or want And at the same time, Molly is also going around buying into calling AAA AAA because there's a rumour going around that AAA um, had sex with seniors in the previous year. So it's very, for someone who is all about being a feminist, she very quickly buys into things that don't respect females as a whole. Um, Is that part of her arc? I'm not sure. <laughs> I it made me think about characterization and and what you want your characters to be like. And I won't go down this rabbit hole for hell for too far, but I think there are some really good lessons to be learnt in this movie about characterization and how actions and the words either support the type of character the author wants to present or actually contradict the type of character that the uh, author wants to present because there's a lot of inconsistencies within the character's actions and words. So anyway, that was just something that that i draw out that I thought would be valuable for people to think about. And Molly, for all of her talk about being Amy's best friend or the perfect best friend, you know, Molly spends a lot of time teasing Amy about very personal things and making her feel uncomfortable. Molly's actions and her overbearing nature set up the friendship fallout. And when Amy finally has had enough of Molly and her wants, it's almost a relief when she slams the biggest obstacle in Molly's path. And that that comes down to telling Molly the truth about 
how much time Amy's going to spend in Africa. So originally it's set up that Amy is going to Africa for the summer, um, but she's going for a whole year just to get away from Molly. And that is the trigger then of the falling out that they have. Molly's treatment of Amy in the climax fight is also really interesting. After they have the fight, um, Amy goes on to prove herself as cool when she diverts the police away from the other party goers. But Molly goes home. And this is an interesting way to end the movie, considering that Molly is really presents herself as the um, primary protagonist. It's 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 just not it just doesn't gel. Um, I think, you know, if Amy's the one that goes and does the bigger action and then Molly goes home, it, it's just there's just something really weird about that. Um so <laughs> just uh and you know, then we go to the ending payoff of the movie, which is a mix of predictable and implausible. And you know, Molly learns that she's mean and she says sorry. Um <laughs> And at the end, I really hope Amy does get on the plane and go to Africa and and I really hope she does something less condescending than helping African women make tampons. Anyway, sorry, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox. <laughs> um, I don't really have much more to say about the forces of antagonism in this movie. They aren't original and, to be honest, most of, most of them don't do anything to grow Molly or Amy. They're very superficial and really centre on getting to the party. But my biggest takeaway from Booksmart is that the force's antagonism must mean something. They must push the protagonist to the all-is-lost moment. The challenges the forces of antagonism throw down also need to provide the protagonist with lessons, whether it's improving physical skills or expanding the way the protagonist thinks so that they can use what they've learnt at the crisis moment. If the challenges don't mean anything, then the story is pointless and it falls flat. All right, so that's my, that's my, um, they're my key takeaways. And hopefully I've given people a bit of an idea about what not to do and think about how you would use your forces of antagonism to really challenge the protagonist. So, but I'm really keen, Valerie, to listen or find out what you thought um, the the hero's gift was because I've got some thoughts, so I'm really keen to hear if your thoughts echo mine. <laughs> okay, <laughs> well, I'll give it up my best shot. The bottom line here is that this is a movie that does not work. It's a story that does not work, and it's filled with stuff we've seen before. Everything in this movie are things we've seen before. They're characters, stereotypes that we've seen many, many times before. It's a plot that we've seen many times before. Uh, I can honestly say it took me a while to get through watching this the first time. I kept pausing the movie and going to do something else because it just wasn't interesting. Okay. Now I know that studying story theory takes time and effort and often as writers who still have day jobs and who are trying to forge this new career in our spare time, we can convince ourselves that studying stories and story theory isn't necessary. Too often, we just ignore the study part or we think, nah, we don't need that. It's a waste of time. Now, if that rings a bell with you, I want you to pay very close attention to what I'm about to say. Book smart 
is a train wreck of a film because either the writers don't know the storytelling basics or they chose to ignore them. Let me give you some examples. I'll start with the Hero's Gift Express because that's what I'm studying uh, this season. So Molly and Amy, they have the same gift. They're smart. They're book smart. And like you, Melanie, I see Molly as the primary protagonist and Amy as the secondary one. So they both know how to study and they know how to do research. Well, how do I know this? Well, because they told me. (laughs) I didn't get to see it in action. They just told me. Molly brags about it constantly. And we saw this same thing in Death on the Nile. We're told Poirot is the greatest detective, but we're robbed of the chance to experience his greatness. Now contrast this with what we saw in Legally Blonde. Elle does not tell us that she knows more about the fashion industry than everybody else. She shows us, and what's more, the other characters are showing us by deferring to her expertise. And this is what the show don't tell axiom is all about, right? This is why it's there. Now, to be honest, it's show and tell, in my opinion, but that's a topic for another day. So let's just move on. (laughs) Now, do they express their gift? Well, yes, they do. But it's at the midpoint of the story. Amy says something like, they're trying to find the the location of Nick's party. And they've been to two parties, which are not the right ones. And so they're desperate. How are we going to find Nick's uh, address or the, the address of Nick's aunt's house? And Amy says something like, well, we'll just do what we do best. We'll go to the library and do our research. Okay, fair enough. Um, but the hero's gift is supposed to be expressed in the climax. And that's not because I'm saying that story has a hard and fast form and that there's a template that we all have to follow. There's a storytelling reason that the the gift is expressed in the story's climax. Because this is what the story is all building to and the climax comes just after the all is lost moment when all the their normal way of going about things is not working and they're sort of in despair wondering how am I going to get out of this situation or how am I going to get the thing that I've been looking for for this whole movie and then they express their gift and they triumph or they do not express their gift and they fail Uh, on that note watch this space because one of these days we are going to study the film Elvis if you have not seen the film Elvis Stop whatever you're doing. Go to see the film Elvis. It is magnificent. It's long, two hours and 40 minutes, but you won't mind that. It's just brilliant. I'll talk for hours about that one. Okay, back to Booksmart. (laughs) So they express their gift at the midpoint. What does that do to the story? It makes the second half of the story really flat. It fizzles. There's nowhere left for the story to go. The shape of a story is such that it continues to build intention and and conflict until you hit that climax. That's it's the climax. <laughs> After all, that's why it's called a climax. And when they express their gift midpoint, it, it just lets the air out of the story. And you know, let's just talk about their object of desire here for a moment. They want to go to the party. (laughs) Like, whoop-de-freaking-do. They want to go to a party. 
and they're going to express their gift for that, that is not an object of desire that is worthy of a story. And that's what's, ha- that's what's happening here. Like any of you who are into personal development, for example, when you're setting a goal, one of the questions that they always ask you is, is your goal worthy of you? So you're writing a novel. Is the topic of your story, because you'll spend a while working on this novel, is the subject of that novel worthy of you? Is it worth you spending two or three or four years of your life on? Well, the same concept applies to story. Is that desire of the protagonist, which is to get to Nick's party so that they can be cool for a day and sort of live their entire high school experience in one night, is that getting to Nick's party, finding the address for Nick's party, a worthy goal that you can frame a whole story around? Because that's it. They're not really interested in becoming cool or experiencing everything that they need to experience or that they should have experienced over three years in one evening. They just want to get to the party to see what it is they're missing. Because for Molly, she has to be better than everybody else. And finding out that her classmates have also gotten into good schools while also having a good time means that they have an edge on her. So she wants to get regain that ground. That's really what's happening there. And to me, it's a, it's a bit thin. It's thin. I don't know what else to say. Okay, this leads me to this whole topic of empathy versus sympathy. You probably have heard somewhere along the line that a character doesn't have to be likable. And that's true. Absolutely. Sympathy for the protagonist isn't necessary, but empathy is. When we empathize with a character, it means that there's something about her that we can relate to. There's something about her that is like us. At the beginning of the movie, Molly is not likable at all. She is self-absorbed. She is conceited. She has disdain for her classmates. And she doesn't treat Amy particularly well. Melanie already talked about this. Although, to be fair, I don't think Molly realizes that she's being unkind to Amy. She knows full well that she's being mean to the other classmates, though. The movie starts out with Molly listening to motivational recordings. Okay, that's all right. That's even admirable for a teenager. (laughs) No problem. However, the tapes end by (laughs) having Molly tell those around her to go F themselves. (laughs) So this is the mental attitude that Molly is bringing into school with her. And I personally cannot empathize with that at all. But it did make me wonder why Molly felt the need to prepare that way for high school. So I wondered if perhaps Molly was being bullied at school and if maybe that's what this whole movie would be about. But it isn't. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. Her classmates are not bullying her at all. They're just sick to death of her attitude and her superiority and the way she talks down to them. The inciting incident for the whole movie comes at about 14 minutes or so in. That's really late for a movie. It really is. This is the bathroom scene where Molly overhears the others talking about her and how much they dislike her. Yes, they are being mean and crude. And in that moment, Uh, Yes, it's easy to empathize with Molly. In that moment, I was rooting for her to overcome that particular opinion of her. 
But the moment passed very quickly. Molly starts bragging about going to Yale and the bright future that she sees herself having. But then the turning point of the scene is when Molly discovers that the three classmates she's talking to are going to Yale and Stanford, and the third guy is going to work for Google for six figures right out of high school when he failed grade seven twice. (laughs) Um, Molly learns that they are not delinquents. She assumed they were, but really they're just teenagers who enjoy having fun, but who are also smart and studious. Now, a problem with this scene Yes, it creates empathy, but it's a scene we've seen a hundred times before. As soon as we see Molly in the cubicle, we know exactly how, and you know, the other kids come in, we know what's going to happen. None of it is even interesting or surprising. On the topic of empathy, the one character that I had tremendous empathy for was Jared. This actor, I don't know who he is. I meant to look it up. I forgot. He steals the whole movie. And he's a secondary character. I had tremendous empathy for him. My heart broke for him. And I kind of wanted to be able to reach through the screen and give him a hug and say, they're there. It'll all be okay. High school. You're not peaking in high school like so many people do. You'll be fine. (laughs) Um, Okay. Setups and payoffs. This is an important topic. Story events have to make sense. One event needs to flow naturally from another. This is sort of a non-negotiable thing here. When we're writing stories, that means, therefore, as writers, we're constantly setting things up and paying them off. This is one of the, th- of the ways that we create tension in a story. But it isn't well executed in Booksmart. And the effect is that the story gets confusing. Things just don't make sense. We're like the teacher hooking up with her student. Like, What? Anyway, moving on. <laughs> I can feel a rant coming on, so I'll just keep moving. All right. For, um, we're led to believe that the classmates hate Molly and Amy and that Molly and Amy are actually crashing a party that they were not invited to. So we're anticipating that when they walk through the door, sparks will fly. But the exact opposite happens. The classmates are actually delighted to see them. And they say they wish Molly and Amy had come out with them sooner. And I think Ryan even says, yeah, I've been trying to get you to hang out with us all year long. Really? Well, you know what that does? It drains the story of tension. It diffuses the conflict. And if you have no conflict, you have no story. It is that simple. This is also true of twists, by the way. With a twist, we're set up to anticipate one event, but then the twist happens and the opposite occurs, right? Great. Now, lest you think that the example I just gave is a twist, remember that for a twist to work, once it's revealed, it has to make sense. In Gone Girl, the diary is a twist. We didn't know it was a diary, But once we find out, it makes perfect sense and it raises all kinds of questions in our minds. And we've just got to keep reading to find the answers. In Booksmart, we're led to believe that Ryan is a lesbian. In fact, the filmmakers are leaning very heavily into the stereotype of a lesbian that we see in movies all the time. So when she hooks up with Nick at the party, it's very confusing what happens is our minds sort of reel back over everything we've seen up to that point, And we're searching for the clue that makes this hookup make sense. You know what? There isn't one because I looked for it. 
this is coming to us out of the blue. It is taking us out of the story. And I don't know about you, Melanie, but I was crying foul very loudly. So the last thing I'm going to touch on here is um, progressive complications and stakes. I mean, there are lots of things I could talk about. Melanie's already talked about a bunch. We could go on and on, but you know, I think you're getting the point. You know, I don't want to beat a dead horse here. But talking about progressive complications and stakes is something I want to highlight because the stakes in a story must constantly get higher. You have to do this. More than that, the the complications and the challenges that are facing your hero or your protagonist can't be repeated. We can't see the same thing happening in the same way to the protagonist because it's boring. Once you see it once, why would it repeat exactly the same way again? Your your reader or viewer knows exactly what's going to happen. That's when they're going to put the book down and not put it back up again, pick it back up again. That's when they're going to turn off the movie and not turn it back on again. All right. So in Booksmart, the first half of the middle build has only one complication and it just keeps getting repeated. They want to go to a party. They don't know where it is. They call for a ride and they go to the wrong place. Rinse and repeat. (laughs) You know, first it's their high school principal who picks them up. And he takes them to the wrong place. Then the next time the person who picks them up is Jared, who takes them to his party, which again is the wrong place. The third time, it's their teacher who picks them up. She finally does take them to Nick's, and then she stays at the party and hooks up with the kid who's going to work at Google. The plot of Booksmart, in my opinion, is at best ho-hum. I agree with absolutely everything you've said there. And I and I do think a lot of that comes back to respecting your audience. And we've also talked in previous episodes about, you know, what writing does and how it programs our brains to either aspire for things or give an instruction, like give us an instruction manual on how to deal with stuff. And so when I look at Booksmart as a potential instruction manual for young adults, is that really the type of thing we want them to take away? And I don't mean in a, we don't need to be didactic when we're telling these stories, but I do think we have to understand what are the real issues that young adults deal with, especially on the cusp Um, of of leaving school and going into the adult world. And there are so many good examples of young adult stories that you could give to kids and young adults of these age to give them a far better idea of what these last few days of high school look like before they go off to university. So, you know, that is something really that comes to mind. We don't need to be gross and silly. We don't need to, you know, try and emulate things like American Pie because I really don't necessarily think that's very useful for, for young adults as they move into the world. So I, I agree with my, everything that you say there, Valerie. And I want to give a shout-out to Jared as well because I really liked him as a character. I had, like you, I had the most empathy for him and of all the cast in that story, he's the one that I really, you know, was more interested about when the movie ended and wondered about how life turned out for him. So, I, I you know, maybe that's a missed opportunity. Um, but it was, yeah, I, I really liked Jared as a character. It's interesting that 
you you talk about the way we present young adult stories. Part of me when I was watching this wondered if maybe I'm just not the audience for it and that's what I'm reacting to because I didn't find the jokes funny and I kind of didn't get it. And that can happen. And that's fair. This is art. Not everything is going to be for everybody. But when we're studying stories, we've got to, and I've talked about this in a previous episode and I can't remember which one it is, but we've got to try and separate our personal opinion of a story, and maybe it's just not for us, with our objective opinion of the story. So one of the things that I did was ask my daughter, because she's the target audience, and I said, have you ever watched Booksmart? And she said, no, she took a pass on it because a bunch of her friends had watched it and none of them had anything good to say about it. But she humored me and I said, just watch the first 10 minutes and tell me what you think. Well, we actually watched the first 14 and a half minutes. The reason being, she kept waiting for something to happen. And the bathroom scene happens at around 14 minutes in and it's over at about 1430. And, you know, she said, yeah, I she said, let me guess at what's going to happen. And she was able to accurately guess the whole story. When Jared came on the screen, though, she burst out laughing and said, oh, my God, I know guys just like him. So she also resonated with Jared the best. And I said, do you want to watch the rest of the movie? And she said, no, I don't. There's nothing in this that is of interest. So it's it's not just that I'm middle-aged and don't get it. <laughs> the, the target audience is not getting it. Uh, it didn't do particularly well at the box office. And this is an important point because this is a word of mouth business. The best possible marketing strategy it was, is a well-written story. So when I dug into it a little bit and the poor box office um, showing was kind of blamed on the fact that the studio didn't, put enough marketing dollars into it and that sort of stuff? Well, no, because my daughter, who's the target audience, got the promotions through social media. And some of her friends did watch it and she didn't because word of mouth made her not want to watch it. Yeah, I had thought about the target audience and if I was the right target audience as well. But then I thought, I I went, well, I changed my mind about that because it's, it's an audience that I write for. So in while I might not be the target audience and the age of the, the cast in the movie, they, the, they have the same target, target audience that I have. And it is, and I thought, no, I need to keep watching this and seeing, it, it, you know, is this successful? Is, if it is, why? And how can I emulate that? Or if it's not successful, then what lessons can I learn from that because we have the same target audience? And so I did go through exactly that process and go, well, maybe, you know, maybe <laughs> I don't get it because I'm not, you know, no longer someone leaving high school. But then I thought, no, there's, there's still really lessons as an author that shares that audience that I need to pick up on. Uh, and I, I did go through that same process as you <laughs> thinking, oh, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm too old to get it. But Having said that, I also do read a lot of stories in that age group. And so from a book perspective, I am a target audience because I read those books and I enjoy them. And like I said, I think there's just so many better stories out there for the young adults um, to to read and engage in. And 
I, you know, that probably shows up in the marketing as well, right? Some of these books really do strike a chord um, and good stories always strike a chord with their audience and are successful. And this is just an example of one that didn't and is probably a cautionary tale for us as authors of what, why and what not to do. And the other thing is that we're able to actually go into the story and identify what wasn't working and why it isn't working. So, you know, that's that's why we're doing all this, so that we don't, when we're working on our own stories, replicate the errors. Okay, the, the big takeaway that I want you to think about here from this episode is that all of the mistakes, you know, the things that weren't working in Booksmart, all of them are avoidable. This is really important, and I want you to think about it. I guarantee you that right now, no one cares about your story as much as you do. And no one but you cares whether you finish your book or whether you get it published or you're able to earn a living wage from your writing. And that's true for me too, by the way. So yes, learning how stories work requires an investment of your time and your money. But if you're not willing to make the investment, why would a reader or an agent or a publisher? Because that is what you're asking them to do. Your reader's time is precious, and she worked hard for her money. Agents put their careers on the line every time they go out on submission. It takes a lot of time to put a submission together, and they don't earn a penny unless a sale is made. The publishing house is putting their business on the line, too. They make a financial investment in each and every manuscript they buy, and they've got to earn that back or they'll go out of business. Now, according to the American Department of Justice, more than 85% of authors do not earn out their advance. That means that publishers are losing money on more than 85% of its purchases. Is it any wonder that the industry is in the shape it's in? But here's the flip side to all of that. It means that for you and me as writers, there is a huge opportunity on the table if we choose to pick it up and run with it. Remember, nothing happens until the writer goes to work. And I believe, I truly believe right to my core that those of us who are willing to learn our craft can write our own tickets. Why? Because everyone in this industry, readers, booksellers, agents, publishers, filmmakers, moviegoers, everybody wants the same one thing. And that is a really great story. For those of us who are willing to learn how stories work and who are willing to roll up our sleeves and develop our craft over time, we will be able to create those amazing stories that people want. And if you want an example, look no further than Elvis. I'm going to start talking about this movie every chance I can get. Okay, so that's all I have to say about that right now. <laughs> Melanie. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so today's action step. So to avoid stereotypical challenges for your story, build a list of all the things that could happen to make your story interesting. Keep adding to it, and when you're happy with your list, rank each challenge from least to most difficult and then use it as you plan or as you write. And, and I can say from experience, this is something that I've used and it works really well. Um, if you sit down and watch a movie or read a book, make a list. Or if you're thinking about your story, make a list 
and you know you'll keep it on theme because you know exactly what it is that your protagonists are trying to get to and you will know intuitively the types of things that are potentially going to trip them up so it's a really simple but very powerful thing to do and that wraps it up for this week Join us again next week when we discuss A Few Good Men. To support the show, please leave us a rating and review and tell your writer friends about us. For even more information about putting story theory into practice, subscribe to my inner circle by visiting valeriefrancis.ca slash inner circle and follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Valerie underscore Francis. And if you'd like to find out more about Melanie, visit melaniehill.com.au or visit her on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Melanie Hill Author. And remember, story theory does not have to be difficult. It's a tool to help you write more, not less. So take it one step at a time and have fun. Mm-hmm.